0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at CatholicThinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is lecture number 11. In our series on the theology of the Old Testament, I'm Father Kenneth Baker, the editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. In our series, we're now, we're in the middle of what's called the Minor Prophets. In the last lecture, number 10, we covered three of them, namely Hosea, Joel, and Amos. In this lecture, I wanna cover Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum and Habakkuk. Yes, it's going to be five this time, and then the last lecture will be the last four. So the first one is very short. It's the shortest book of the whole Old Testament, the prophecy of Obadiah. There are only 21 verses in this very short prophecy. That's why they're called Minor Prophets, I guess. This was written probably around the year 450 before Christ. The theme of it is very simple. It has to do with the destruction of the country of Edom, which is to the east of Israel. Edom was an ancient enemy of Israel. They were descendants of Esau. You Remember the conflict between Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis and how Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. And then he went off to his cousins and when he came back, he was afraid that Esau was going to kill him. But they were finally reconciled. But the two families always remained hostile to one another. And um, when the Babylonians came and when the Assyrians came and especially when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and the Judea, the Edomites joined in with the Babylonians and took property away from their brothers or cousins, the Judeans. And so Nahum, he condemns Edom for this. Basically, it's a condemnation, the first part of the first 15 verses of Edom for what they did to Judea when they were overwhelmed by their adversaries, the Babylonians. So the prophecy expresses a passionate appeal for vengeance against an ancient enemy who took advantage of Judah when she was weak and down. So that's kind of the idea. It's getting even with them for what they did. The prophet reminds us of the terrible justice and power of God, who is the defender of what is right and the avenger of the oppressed poor. So Obadiah reinterprets the earlier prophetic traditions which had threatened Judah and Israel with punishment for their crimes. So he prophesies that on that day, he applies those punishments not to uh, Israel and Judah, but to Edom because of their betrayal and joining in with the enemies of Judea when they conquered them. So it has to do with the day of the Lord, but it has to, in this case, it's with regard to the Edomites who are the descendants of Esau. So that's the fourth of the minor prophets. The fifth minor prophet is one that's well known, and that is the prophecy of Jonah. In popular literature, it's Jonah and the whale. Although in the Bible, the word for fish is a large fish the Hebrew word does not designate whale. We don't know what kind of a fish it actually was. Of course, a whale is the biggest fish in the sea. Perhaps it was a whale, but the Bible doesn't say that it was a whale. This prophecy also was probably written around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the middle of the fifth century, probably around 450 BC. We don't know anything about the author. He's not mentioned anywhere in scripture. The theme of the book of Jonah, is God's compassionate love for all mankind, both Jew and Gentile. And the author tries to reassure his fellow Jews that the divine oracles against their pagan neighbors, especially those contained in Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were conditional. These were conditional threats. That is, they were conditioned by their repentance and conversion because if anybody repents and converts, God will forgive them. God does not hate any of the people that he has made. He loves all of them. We know that from Scripture. Now Jonah is unlike any of the other prophets. This book doesn't contain any oracles, any prophecies, or anything like that about the future. It's an interesting and sometimes humorous, sometimes humorous story about a reluctant prophet who's called by God to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, which had always been hostile and cruel to Israel, and to preach conversion to them and faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. So Jonah doesn't like the call and he tries to escape. So he gets on this ship headed for Tarshish. And so far as we know, that was someplace over in Spain. So God causes a storm. The ship is overloaded and they have to throw things overboard. And the uh, seamen find out that the reason for the storm and their almost destruction is Jonah. So they toss him overboard and the Lord has this big fish come up and swallow him. He is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and then he's spewed out on the shore near Assyria, near Nineveh and sent on his way by God. He said, I told you to go and preach to the Ninevites. So he actually does that. He goes to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was the capital of Assyria and the Assyrians had invaded Israel and Judea several times. They were very cruel, very cruel. And when they destroyed Israel in the north and Samaria, they deported all the people to Assyria. And as I mentioned in previous lectures, the 10 tribes of Israel all disappeared into the Assyrians. They were, they were pretty much wiped out. But God has compassion on the Ninevites who were enemies of the chosen people. He sends Jonah to them to preach. We read in there that it took them three days to cross the city. It was a huge city of Nineveh, three days to cross the city, preach repentance for their sins, and everybody joined in the fast and repented, including the king. And then Jonah went out of the city because he thought that God was going to destroy the city, and he sits outside the city waiting for the city to be destroyed. But God does not destroy the city. He has mercy on them because they repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now, the meaning of this book depends on its literary form. Basically, the question here comes down to this. Is the book of Jonah factual history or not? Or is it a parable or some kind of story made up with the idea of teaching some divine truth? Now, opinions on this are divided. For 2,2500 years, Christians and Jews always held that this book was a historical account. But scripture scholars in the last couple of centuries have raised some doubts about that because of a number of things that are in there and many of them think that it's kind of symbolic or mythical or something like a parable, uh, the parables that Jesus told. opinions are divided on this and now you can hold, you know, either opinion. The difficulty with the symbolic view is that Jesus himself makes reference to Jonah when he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, for three days and three nights, so also will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights between the time of his crucifixion and his time of his resurrection, which seems to indicate that he's referring to something that actually happened in the past. Now liberal interpreters of the 20th century, liberal Protestants, and currently most Catholic biblical scholars interpret the book of Jonah as a parable or as didactic fiction or even as an allegory. They may interpret it differently, but they more or less all agree that it's not historical, that it's a parable to teach a lesson. Whatever that may be, we might ask, what does the book of Jonah mean? That's what I'm concerned about in this series, is what's the meaning of the book? What's God saying to us through the book of Jonah? The main point was expressed in the theme, namely, God's love and compassion extend to all human beings, Jew and Gentile alike. There was a tendency among the Jews of the time towards what's called Particularism. That is, they felt that God's love extended only to the Israelites and the Jews and God hated all the other nations. But there are also tendencies in the Bible that towards Universalism, pointing out that God loves all the peoples that He made, Jews and Gentiles. And His salvation comes to all the Gentiles through the Jewish people because Christ as the savior of mankind is born as a son of David and he comes from the tribe of Judah, from the Jewish nation. So Jonah himself is an example of this narrow mentality or particularism found among the Jews of his time. It shows here that God has mercy and he's concerned about the salvation of all mankind. So in the New Testament then, Jesus makes reference to the sign of Jonah as a type of his three days of death before his resurrection. We find that in Matthew 12:39 and in Luke 11:30. So it's because of the popular interest in this, that the prophecy is well known, of course, of the Jonah and the whale. We even have it in popular songs. And as I said, it's not necessarily a whale. We don't, it doesn't say specifically what kind of a fish it was. But the key point here is the universalism of God's love, which extends to all mankind, not just to the Jews. That's the key point of the prophecy of Jonah. And Jonah seems to be a little bit unhappy about that because he has a very particular view of God's special and unique love for the chosen people. Jonah is followed by the prophet Micah, M-I-C-A-H. This particular prophet lived during the time of Isaiah of 740 to 701 before Christ. He's a contemporary. Some of his oracles Our prophecies precede the destruction of Samaria in 721 and some of them come after that time. Like Amos, he lived in the country and he rebukes the corrupt ways of city dwellers in Samaria and Jerusalem. So this book of Micah, which has seven chapters, bounces back and forth between threats for sin and promises of restoration. He threatens Israel, and Judah with punishment and destruction if they do not repent of their sins of injustice. If they do repent, God will be gracious to them and promises to bless them abundantly. We have that all the way through the Bible that when people repent of their sins, all they have to do is to repent and God will forgive them and restore them and bless them abundantly. Micah sees the Assyrians as the instruments in the hands of God to punish his people for their sins. But once again, he says, as the other prophets do, a remnant will remain to be the carriers of God's promises to his people. He will not destroy them completely as he did the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Even today, the Assyrians and Babylonians are gone, but the Jewish people are still here. That's in connection with the promise to Abraham. So Micah, proclaims that the political and military disasters which threaten Israel and Judah come from the anger of the Lord, which the people have aroused by their sins, and the instruments of punishing them are the Assyrians. They're the instruments of the punishment, but there will always be the remnant, as I mentioned. And the crimes he denounces include oppression of the poor and dishonesty, superstitious worship of the Lord Yahweh, that is, merely external works without internal conviction and internal conversion and the lack of genuine morality. The reason for the punishment is to save and not to destroy. Always it's to purify, to bring around conversion of heart. The Lord will preserve a faithful remnant, and from that remnant a new David will arise who will restore the nation in a way that surpasses its former glory, and the prophet Micah, here is 700 before Christ, predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in 312, chapter 3, verses 12. And he knows that he's a true prophet, not like those false prophets who tell the people what they want to hear. For him, the charisma of the prophet is power and the spirit of the Lord judgment and strength to denounce sin and to denounce injustice. Almost all the prophets do that. They denounce sin and injustice, call towards repentance and return to the Lord. Micah practically summarizes the teachings of all the prophets when he says bluntly what the Lord asked of his people. And I quote from chapter six, verse eight. Only this, to do what is right to love kindness and to walk humbly with your god end of quote that's a very brief summary of the message of all the prophets and also st matthew in his second chapter quotes micah chapter 5 verses 1 to 3 to prove that jesus is the messiah because the prophet had predicted he would be born in bethlehem so let's take a look at that and the prophet micah That's 5, 1 to 3. This is quoted in the New Testament to indicate that Jesus would be born of Bethlehem. This is chapter 5 from Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the least of the clans of Judah, out of you will be born for me the one who is to rule over Israel. His origin goes back to the distant past, to the days of old. So when we're familiar with the Christmas story and, and the liturgy and so forth around Christmas, You'll recognize this as a quote that occurs regularly in the liturgy from the prophet Micah from his fifth chapter. So that pretty much summarizes what we have from the prophet Micah, who is the sixth of the 12 minor prophets. The next one is Nahum, N-A-H-U-M or Nahum. He's the seventh of the minor prophets. He wrote about 610 before Christ. This is right around the time when the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. You know, there's a series of empires in the Middle East during this time. The Assyrians were the first ones, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians came along and defeated the Babylonians, then the Greeks came and defeated the Persians, and after that the Romans defeated the Greeks. And all of these cultures are represented in the Bible in one way or another because the writings of the Bible reflect, as we've said before, the political and the social situation in which they lived. The Bible has to do with what's called salvation history. That is God bringing the good news of salvation in and through history and historical events. So we don't know anything about Nahum except his name and that he came from a town of Elkosh, E-L-K-O-S-H. The site of the town is not known and it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So this book was probably written either during or shortly after the siege of Nineveh by the Babylonians. Remember we said that Jonah was sent to Nineveh to preach repentance. So Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And in the year 612, the Babylonians fought a war with the Ninevites and the Assyrians and defeated them and destroyed their city of Nineveh. So in this particular book. The theme is very simple, the fall of Nineveh. And the prophet exults and rejoices over the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrian power. Why? Because of what they had done to Israel and to Judea. They were hated by the Jews. They were very cruel. They're the ones who destroyed the 10 tribes in the north in Israel. So this prophecy is all about the destruction of Nineveh and the exaltation of the prophet that they have been given the just reward for their sins. God does not allow sin and injustice to go unpunished. So he punishes the Assyrians through the Babylonians. But he doesn't reflect very much on the fact that the Babylonians are going to do the same thing that the Assyrians did. He, He leaves that aside. He's concerned about punishment of the Assyrians. Now it's important to note that the Assyrians had invaded Israel and Judah Many times in the 8th and 7th centuries, so in the 700s and the 600s before Christ, they were extremely cruel in the way they treated their conquered peoples. And also they brought foreigners into Israel, into Samaria, intermarried with the Jews that were there, and out of that come the Samaritans. That we find this story in the New Testament about the Good Samaritan. Samaritans were enemies of the Jews, they were considered like pagans, by the faithful Jews the temple in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. They didn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. So they were a mixture of Jews and foreigners. And the prophet here, as I say, exults over the destruction of that power. Now the prophecy seems to be quite secular and political. I say he's happy over the destruction of Nineveh. There are no threats here directed against his own people. The name of the Lord is mentioned twice, but Nahum sees Yahweh as the real agent in the destruction of Nineveh. God is using Babylon to punish the Assyrians. That's the point here. And the prophet sees that the fall of Nineveh proves the principle of Israelite belief that the Lord will eventually punish the wicked and those who oppress others. So that's the basic message of Nahum And in the New Testament, St. John seems to have made use of Nahum's portrayal of the ruin of Nineveh as a model for his description of the destruction of Rome under the symbol of Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that would be in chapters 17 and 18. From a literary point of view, the oracles of Nahum reach a very high poetic level. And some scholars consider the prophecy of Nahum to be among the best written books in the Old Testament. But he's very severe in his condemnation and getting even with the Assyrians for what the Assyrians had done to the Jewish people over a period of about 200 years. They finally got their punishment when the Babylonians conquered them and destroyed them and that was in the year 612 before Christ. So The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem the first time. About 15 years later, in 597, they conquered uh, Jerusalem the first time. They put in their own king, Zedekiah, who rebelled against them. And 10 years later, they came back, besieged the city and destroyed the city completely. That was when the Jewish religion and the Jewish people were wiped out in the year 587 and went into captivity for 50 years before they returned in 537 to begin rebuilding the temple without the kings and so forth and developing into the Judaism of the time of Christ that we discussed in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now the last book to consider in today's lecture is the book of Habakkuk. That's the eighth book of the minor prophets. This prophecy was probably written around the time before the destruction of Jerusalem, around the time 597. It was most likely that the prophecy was composed between 605 and 597. We don't know anything about the life and person of Habakkuk except that he seems to have been associated with the temple of Jerusalem in some way. So he's probably a Levite or a priest or something like that. And his name is spelled H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K. So you have three Ks in this name of Habakkuk, this prophet. In the context of the oppression of Judah by the Babylonians, the theme of this book is like Job, the problem of evil, and specifically how God can permit his ends to be accomplished by evil and unbelieving oppressors. The book contains three parts, there are only three chapters, a dialogue between the prophet and God about injustice, in the first chapter. The proclamation of five woes on the Babylonian invaders who are about to destroy Jerusalem, that they're going to be punished also eventually. They were destroyed in turn by the Persians, by Cyrus some years later. And a final psalm announcing the revelation and victory of God and promise of restoration of the Jewish people after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now there's a certain inner unity and progression of the text which points to one author. But it moves back and forth from complaint about injustice to a vision of God's judgment of the wicked and finally to a revelation of the glory of God. The book moves from a certain doubt about the evil around us to a vision of how God will deal with it and finally to a basic trust in God no matter how bad things may appear to be. Now the first step in the answer to the problem of evil is that God brings down one oppressing nation, namely Assyria, by another, that's Babylon. The next step is that in the rise and fall of nations, the just or the righteous man will survive by his fidelity to the Lord. The final step is that Yahweh Himself is the one who saves the just man, that's in the third chapter. Now in this prophecy, for the first time in Israelite literature, A man questions the ways of God. We're talking about around the year 600 almost. This is 100 years before the book of Job. But he questions the way that God deals with men. For Habakkuk calls God to account for his governance of the world. And God replies to the prophet that he's using Babylon to punish the wicked, Assyrians. But he reassures the prophet that the just Israelite, the just one is one who follows the law of Israel, will not perish in the coming disaster. And there's a hint here again of the famous remnant, the small group that will remain even though the word itself does not occur. Now in this prophecy, there are a lot of obscurities and ambiguities in these three short chapters. So this has stimulated many commentaries on the book of Habakkuk. There are many commentaries on it, giving it an allegorical interpretation. In developing his idea of faith, St. Paul quotes Habakkuk that the just man lives by faith. That's in Habakkuk, second chapter, fourth verse. Because all of us have sinned, we cannot be justified by works alone. Justification comes only through faith in Jesus Christ who has redeemed us by shedding his blood. And the author of Hebrews quotes the same text in order to stress the importance of faith in order to persevere in times of persecution. And finally, in her Magnificat in St. Luke's Gospel, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, there is an example of the faith and confidence in God foreshadowed in Habakkuk when she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. They find that text in St. Luke 1st chapter, verse 47. It refers to Habakkuk 3.18. So. This is the prophecy of Habakkuk, which has some overtones also in the New Testament and in the writings of St. Paul. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.